So Psalm 89, the song that we just sang, will also be our selected reading for this morning. And our text is going to be Psalm 90, so I'm going to go right from the one into the other. This is the Word of God, a contemplation of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known your faithfulness to all generations, for I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David. Your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. And the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the saints. For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You have broken Rahab in pieces as one who was slain. You have scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world in all its fullness, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, rejoice in your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand and high is your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all day long. And in your righteousness they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. And in in your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord. And our king to the Holy One of Israel. Then you spoke in a vision to your Holy One. And said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found my servant David. With my holy oil I have anointed him with whom my hand shall be established. Also my arm shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. I will beat down his foes before his face and plague those who hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him. And in my name his horn shall be exalted. Also, I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. He shall cry out to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also, I will make him my firstborn, the the highest of the kings of the earth. My mercy I will keep for him forever. 
and my covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. If his sons forsake my law, And do not walk in my judgments. If they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me, it shall be established forever like the moon, even like the the faithful witness in the sky. But you have cast off and abhorred. You have been furious with your anointed. You have renounced the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. You have broken down all his hedges. You have brought his strongholds to ruin. All who pass by the way plunder him. He is a a reproach to his neighbors. You You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword and have not sustained him in the battle. You have made his glory cease. And cast his throne down to the ground. The days of his youth you have shortened. You have covered him with shame. How long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what utility have you created all the children of men? What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his life from the power of the grave? Lord, where are your former loving kindnesses, which you swore to David in your truth? Remember, Lord, the reproach of your servant, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn men to destruction and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it's past, and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like, like a sleep. In the morning they are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it is cut down and withers. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath, and we finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are seventy years, and if by reason of strength they are eighty years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off, and we fly away. 
Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So far our reading from God's word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you were following along in your Bibles, you saw that as we read from Psalm 89 to Psalm 90, we crossed over from the third book of the Psalter to the fourth book of the Psalter. Now, as a student of Scripture, and this is something I picked up in Old Testament class, we don't know why most of the Psalms are where they are. We don't know why certain psalms come before other psalms, why certain psalms come after certain psalms. Sometimes we do, most of the time we don't. But the psalm we're looking at today, Psalm 90, that, it's an exception to that rule. There's a great deal of uncertainty surrounding most of the psalms, but the placement of the psalms around Psalm 90 follows a definite pattern that we can see. The psalms go from the darkness and the depression of Psalms 88 and 89. Psalm 88 ends by saying, the darkness is my closest friend. Psalm 89, where are your promises to David? What has happened to your faithfulness? The psalms go from the darkness and depression of Psalms 88 and 89 to the hope and the brightness of Psalms 90 through 106. And and there's an important historical reason for this. See, it's widely thought that, that the third book of the psalms, Psalm 73 through 89, was put together around the time that the nation of Israel went into exile. They were carried off to Assyria or Babylon, and they were wondering, and we read this in Psalm 89, they were wondering what has happened to all of God's promises. Wasn't God supposed to be faithful? Wasn't God supposed to be good? How can all of this evil have happened to us? And if we are honest... And if we allow the Psalms to make us as honest as we ought to be, these are questions that many of us have from time to time. We may wonder from time to time about whether God is really going to keep His promises. Because we, we look at the world around us and we see that, that things so often are going from bad to worse. Fewer people are going to church. Fewer churches are faithful to God. Our country looks like it's going the wrong way, regardless of who's in charge. We might wonder if the economy is going to go down and take a nosedive. We might wonder if there are more waves of COVID in the future. We might wonder if there are wars looming on the horizon and closer to home. We might wonder about our own federation or local church or family. We may wonder about estranged relatives or strained relationships. And we might ask, what has become of all of God's promises? Is God really with us? And if he's really with us, how can so many bad things be happening to us and around us? And as we saw in Psalm 89, the psalmist is honest, and these are not new questions. 
These are questions that people struggling under the weight of the fall have been asking for thousands of years by now. They asked these questions back in Moses' time. They asked these questions during the time of the exile, and we still ask these questions today. But with all this in the background of our minds, let's now go to Psalm 90. Let's go to God's Word and consider what God says there. Because we need to learn how to rightly number our days. We need to learn how to see God rightly. We need to learn how to see ourselves rightly, and we need to know how we relate to God. So with that as our theme, we need to, know how to, uh, we need to learn how to number our days. Let's first consider God's eternity in verses 1 through 6, and then consider our mortality in verses 7 through 11, and then lastly, let's consider together verses 12 through 17, Moses' prayer for perspective. In the psalm, it, it begins with an extended meditation on the eternity or the pre-existence of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. That's how we have it here. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. But more literally, it's, it's Lord, you have been a dwelling place for us in all generations. There's a subtle difference there. Because even though God is an ever-present help for his people... His people do not always take refuge in Him like they should. But Moses confesses, Adonai, the Lord, the ruler over all of creation, He has been a dwelling place. He has been a safe place for His people throughout their history. And this is an important place to start. Moses is admitting that God came before God's people. And therefore, anything that God's people considered or did needed to be done or considered in the light of that fact. God is the Lord of the covenant. We are His servants. God is so much bigger than the people with whom He chooses to have this relationship. And so since God is the one who started the relationship, and since everything that takes place within that covenant relationship is a matter of God giving grace to His people, Moses is quite right to say That as Israel's covenant God and as the church's covenant God, the Lord is the dwelling place of his people. And so when Moses and the people of Israel with him were looking across the Jordan at the land of Canaan, they understood that that good land, that dwelling place they were looking forward to, it was a temporary home. Given enough time, either that place would pass away or they would. And this was an important thing for God's people in exile to recognize as well. They had been pulled up from their land. They had been uprooted. But even though they had been pulled out of their homes, God remained for them a dwelling place that could not be moved, a home that could not be shaken. And beloved, this is as true for us today as it was for Moses and Israel on the banks of the Jordan. It's as true for us today as it was for Israel by the rivers of Babylon. Our dwelling place, our sustenance, our protection, the rock on which we stand is the unshakable and unmovable eternal one, God Most High. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And we need to keep that all-important perspective. The blessings that God gives to His people, whether they're land or possessions or freedoms or even the ability to meet for worship, all of these blessings must never eclipse the God from whom they flow, the God who is our true dwelling place. 
And Moses drives this point forward even, even further in verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In verse 1, Moses emphasized the fact that God was a covenant God. He had been a God to Abraham, Abraham and to his seed in the covenant community. And now in verse 2, he points out that, that, that God even came before the formation of the covenant. And he even preceded the foundation of the world. God is so eternal and God is so powerful that the most abiding and the most strong things that we can think of, the mountains, they're depicted as things that God spoke into existence. Even the biggest things on earth, which are so stable and unmovable, even they are young and fleeting in the, in the eyes of God. Before the mountains were brought forth, even before the world was brought forth, the first day of creation, God was reigning supreme. And since this is the case, if God is His people's dwelling place, if God is His people's refuge, they will never be moved if they depend on Him. And verse 3 then develops this theme, pointing out that since He is God over time, even God before time, since He precedes everything else that exists, the heavens and the earth and all of creation, everything that we know, and since He will also outlast all of creation, since the most permanent things in creation are, are, are the blink of an eye to Him, He is also sovereign over all of human existence. Verses 3, 5, and 6. You, say, you turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of man. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning they are like grass which, which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it is cut down and withers. Verse 3, God is the one who is sovereign over all of human existence. God is the one who is the ender of our days. God is the one who, as we confess in Lord's Day, one, uh, Lord's Day 10, God is the one who so rules heaven and earth and all of creation that leaf and blade, the grass under our feet, the crops in our fields, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. And then verses 5 and 6. God sweeps men away like a flood. He cuts them down like grass being mown. And in this also we see the wonderful providence of God. This business of, of, of sweeping people away like a flood, of cutting them down like grass, it, it sounds horrific to someone who doesn't know God. But for those who know God to be their dwelling place, really there is no more comforting reality. Because if we have placed our confidence in the one who has power over death, if we, are if we have placed our confidence in the one who, who, who went through death to sanctify the grave for us, then the fact that the end of our lives is not a matter of chance, but is a matter of God's sovereign, fatherly governing of all things, that fact should give us immense comfort. Both when we're facing our own death and when we're facing the reality of the deaths of those we love. Our times are in His hands. Well, think of what Jesus said about Lazarus in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. When, when he died, the angels carried him to Abraham's side. God is sovereign over death. And Christ has sanctified the grave. We can and we should hate 
and weep over the reality of death, but we do not need to fear it because Christ has broken the power of the grave. In verse 4, which I skipped over it, it really stands at the heart of this first section of this psalm. For a thousand years in your sight, they're like yesterday when it's past. They're like a watch in the night. Now when we think long term, when we as mortals think long term, we usually mean next year or, or maybe the next five to ten years. We, we really have difficulty seeing beyond that, don't we? Especially as young people, we have vague ideas of, of where we want to be when we're older, whenever that happens to be, but, but our way of seeing the world is, is really limited to a few years ago and, and a few years from now. We don't know what this coming year is going to bring. At this point last year, we had no idea what 2021 was going to bring. We're not seers, we're not prophets. But for God, Moses says, for God, even a millennium is like yesterday. We read the book of Genesis with all of its genealogies, Adam and Methuselah living almost a thousand years, and even those impressive lifespans are like nothing compared to God, the one who lived forever before Adam and will live forever after Methuselah. A thousand years, our text tells us, a thousand years is like the memory of yesterday. It's like a night that we've slept through in the mind of God. How then, when, we've, when we're considering how the world is going, when we're considering how the world ought to go, how then can we measure God by our standards? How can we judge the eternal judge of all the earth? How can we judge the judge? What perspectives can we bring to God that He has not yet considered? What evidence can we bring to light that He is not intimately aware of? And this, beloved in Christ, this, this can be, it can be a source of immense encouragement to God's people. God is before all things. In Him, all things hold together. He has a plan for every part of creation's history. And this brings us to our second point, taking stock of our mortality. In verses 3 through 6, Moses considered humanity in general, all the sons of Adam, all the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, I suppose. You turn man to destruction and say, return, O children of Adam. He considered that, that the end of all of humanity is death. But now in verses 7 through 11, the subject changes. He's not dealing with all of humanity, humanity in general, Rather, he's dealing with those that he talked about in verse 1. He's dealing with those for whom the Lord has been a dwelling in all of their generations. But though the Lord had been their dwelling place, still Moses says, For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we are terrified. And when, when, when considering what Moses is talking about, it's, it, it's good to go back to the context of the writing of this psalm. Moses probably wrote this psalm around the time that he was, he was writing the book of Deuteronomy, toward the end of his life, as the people of Israel were planning to enter the promised land without him. Moses, by this point, a full 120 years old, he's considering the past 40 years he spent shepherding God's people in the wilderness, wandering. For the past 40 years, he might consider, God has been taking down a full generation of Israelites. 
Everyone numbered in the census at the beginning of the book of Numbers was dead by the end of that book when a new census was taken. Everybody except for Moses and Joshua and Caleb. The bodies of thousands upon thousands of Israelites lay behind them, marking their trail through the wilderness as a trail in which a whole generation of Israelites had indeed been consumed. A whole generation had been brought to an end by God's fierce anger. And now when Moses looks out on the camp, he sees a multitude of people, only two of whom are even half of his age. And then viewing this judgment, the remainder of the nation would have been terrified. The children would have seen the deaths of their grandparents and parents, and they would have been terrified. They would have been pushed by that evidence that they could clearly see, pushed by that evidence to fear God rightly. Moses says, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. Because of the sins of that rebellious generation, because of their unbelief, because of their refusal to enter the land when God commanded, because of those sins, they were cut down in the wilderness. And this was even going to be the fate of Moses, the man of God. Because of his sins, God would not allow him to enter Canaan with the people. And this very much was the situation of the exiles in Babylon as well. Because of their sins, many of their brothers and sisters and parents and grandparents had been killed or had been carted off by the kings of, of Assyria and Babylon. They were, they were made well aware of their sins and, and of the penalty for those sins. And then verse 9 continues the thought of verse 7. For all of our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years with a sigh. Our lives are lived under the curse of Adam, but, but we also make our lives more difficult all the time by just making sinful choices. Our lives are lived under the curse, and, and when they come to an end, they finish with a whimper, not a roar. You can think back over the past hundred or so years. Think of all the dictators, all the powerful men of the 20th and 21st centuries. They lived their lives in open defiance of both God and men, but in the end, they died as much as anyone else. Because when the game is over, the pawns and the rooks and the bishops and knights, the two kings and two queens, they all go back in the same box. We may live our lives with a roar, but we will die with a whimper. We finish our years with a sigh. He goes on, the, the, the days of our life are 70 years, and if by, strength, uh, if by reason of strength they are 80, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it soon is cut off and we fly away. The normal span of a person's life is 70, maybe 80, if we have the strength for it, if we're, if we're blessed with prosperity and health. But no matter how long our lives are, they, they pass with sorrow and struggle, and before we know it, they're gone. And even if we reach a good old age, the best of those years, their boast is just labor and sorrow. As Solomon might say, all is vanity, all is a chasing after the wind. Even the best of our years passes with pain. And even our most life-affirming days have sorrow and a stain of death mixed in with them. So he asks, who knows the power of your anger? And as the ESV puts it, who knows your wrath according to the fear of you? Who fully comprehends all this? Who fears God like he ought to fear God? Implicitly, what Moses is saying, what he's making clear is that people don't get this. 
And, and that's why the world is so full of people who are either, either unrepentant, taking their sins lightly, or otherwise full of people who are determined to make themselves right with God by their own effort. We don't understand God's wrath. We don't understand our mortality. We don't understand His infinity. Both of these reactions, uh, not, not taking our sins seriously and, and trying to make ourselves right with God by our effort, both of these reactions, they dishonor God and they put people in precarious positions. As we confess in Lord's Day 1, to live and die in the joy of the comfort of knowing that we belong to Christ requires a knowledge of our sin and misery. Not just our sin, not just knowing that we are bad people, but also our misery. Knowing that we can't do anything about it on our own. Knowing our poverty and weakness. So who has enough fear to fit God's wrath? Moses is saying here, the natural man, by nature, all of us do not possess that fear of God. And from that realization, he then breaks forth in verses 12 through 17 with a cascade of requests. And that brings us to our final point, praying for perspective. In light of what's already been covered, God's infinity and, and our sin-filled mortality, Moses brings his requests to God. First, Teach us to number our days so we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to understand our brief lives. Teach us to understand that we are finite. Teach us to understand that our days are numbered and that this finitude, this mortality, is a result of our fall into sin. Again, this is exactly what, what, what question and answer two is getting at. We need to know these things. We need to know how finite and frail and fallen we are or any other pursuit of wisdom is just going to be an exercise in futility. But for those, beloved, for those who are able by God's grace to take stock of their mortality, there is a wealth of wisdom. True wisdom, after all, lies in rightly knowing God and rightly knowing ourselves, and the, and the numbering of our days points to both. It alerts us to our sinfulness, and it alerts us to God's justice. And in this request, teach us to number our days, we pray help us to see things from this perspective, from your perspective, neither squandering our limited number of days nor seeing you as any less than you are, infinite and righteous. Give us the perspective that Jesus had. Give us, give us Jesus' perspective who devoted himself to your service all of, all of the days that you gave him on this earth. Give us the perspective of Jesus whose joy it was to do your will with a whole heart. Who alone among men was perfectly wise and led an unspoiled life. And then in verses 13 through 15 we have the cry of Moses' heart. Weighed down as it is by this knowledge of his frailty. Return, O Lord, how long? And have compassion on your servants. O, o, satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have humbled us for as many years as we have seen adversity. See, if the Lord, if Yahweh, and this is the first time in this psalm that the covenant name of God is used, if Yahweh, our covenant gracious God, is not with us, then even having a heart of wisdom is just going to crush us. 
being wise enough to, to know that God is perfect and that we are mortal is just going to crush us if God is not on our side. And therefore Moses cries out again in verse 13, how, how long? Have compassion on your servants. Moses asks the covenant God of Israel to, to show his faithful love once again to his people. They have, for 40 years now, been experiencing both the miraculous provision of manna and also the death of an entire generation. They have experienced both blessing and cursing under the hand of God. And now they ask that despite their failings, despite their disobedience, that the Lord would be compassionate and gracious. He would be slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, not always accusing them, not being angry with them forever, not dealing with them according to their sins, not repaying them in accordance with their iniquities. And this, of course, is our prayer as well along with God's people throughout history, along with the saints under the altar in heaven, we cry out, how long is it going to be? Often not taking into account the perfect timing of God. Not realizing that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. But Moses cries out for compassion, and he, and he asks God, Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us with, the years in which we have seen evil. Where in verses 9 and 10, Moses had pointed out that all of our days, all of our years pass with sorrow and pain, he now asks God to satisfy his people in all of their days to satisfy His people in all of their years with His faithful love, with His covenant faithfulness. And He asks this so that, so that having been satisfied with that faithful love, they may rejoice and shout for joy. Give us joy, He prays. Give us joy. Joy to fill every day of adversity. Regardless of how evil our days may be, make us glad. Give us gladness to meet every affliction. For we know that both affliction and blessing come from your fatherly hand. And notice in verse 15 again, the days in which you have afflicted us. The afflictions, the hardships that we undergo, regardless of what they are, they are not outside of the control of God. And so we can have confidence that regardless of how horrible they are, they are being used in God's infinite wisdom, to work out His perfect purposes for His glory and for our good. And then verse 16, Let your work appear to your servants, he prays, and your glory to their children. He's got, he's got two requests here. First, let us see you working in our midst, as we have heard you worked in the past. For the Israelites coming into Canaan, this would have been a request for God to, to deal with the Canaanites just like he dealt with Egypt in the sea, overthrowing the Canaanites like he had overthrown Egypt, as in fact he did. And for the Israelites going into exile in Babylon, this would have been, this would have been a request to return to the land in triumph, as in fact they did. And for us, it might be something like, 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 let us come back to worship you together. No masks, all together in one room. Let us come together as your people to worship you together, to gaze on your majesty in the assembly of your people. Or, or, or maybe give us the strength, give us the strength of commitment to stand for your truth like our parents and grandparents did. Or, or, or maybe it's a request, give us, give us a love for your word. Help us to devote ourselves to your word 
like you gave the reformers that ability, like you gave the reformers that love, and use our generation as mightily as you did that generation. Let your work appear to your servants. And then secondly, he asks God, let let your glory, your glory appear to their children. He doesn't just pray for his generation. He prays for all of the members of the covenant community, both believers and their children. See, in the work of God, the glory of God is shown. In the case of of Moses' contemporaries, this would have been seeing God's arm bared in strength against the enemies of, of, of his people, displaying his strength, displaying his divine majesty to the whole covenant congregation, the, the adults and their children, and then and then asking God, having asked God to display his work to his people, Moses goes on to ask God to establish his people's work. Let the beauty of the Lord be upon us. Let us grow to resemble the Lord more and more and more as we go from glory to glory. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. What Moses is asking here in this last part is for some significance to the work that God's people are undertaking. Establish it, they pray. Make it firm, make it immovable, make it last. This is the desire of all people, to do something meaningful with their lives, to accomplish something of lasting value. And it's all of our prayer at the beginning of this year, Father, do not let this year be insignificant. In this year, work out your purposes. In this year, work in your people. But Moses knows, and we should know as well, that if our work is not done before the face of God, if our work is not done in service of God, our work will be in vain. And our work will not be established. Because he knows that only God, as the everlasting one, as the one who existed before the world was founded, as the one who will exist after the mountains melt, only God, as the everlasting one, can give our lives, can give our jobs, can give our service, can give this coming year any significance. Amen.